Let's go ahead and open up with a word of prayer if we could. Our Father, we do give praise to your name. We rejoice in this day. We rejoice in the victory of Jesus Christ over death. And Lord, uh, we thank you for his resurrection and ascension back to you, uh, signifying, Lord, what will ultimately one day be true for us. That's our hope. That's what we hope in. Lord, that's what we're fixed on for the future. And we're so grateful for what you've done in and to us and in through us and what you continue to do. Lord, we're thankful for your word this morning that we have the great privilege of openly discussing it, uh, looking at what the pen of Ezekiel wrote so long ago. Lord, uh, trying to get our perspectives correct on what you say is going to happen. So, Lord, we ask that you would guide our hearts and our minds this morning by your spirit, and may we be pleasing to you in our worship this morning. For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. This is week number 40 in our study of, uh, really it's more about the grand plan of God than it is about eschatology. <clears throat> because we're looking at a, a broader swipe than just looking at eschatology. But we're over in the book of Ezekiel. And last week we uh, looked at the opening verses of chapter 44. So I think we only have another probably four weeks in the book of Ezekiel, something like that. Um, as we'll move into chapter 45 this morning and there are only 48 chapters and then I'm still trying to figure out where we're going to go after that. I, I know ultimately we're going to go to Daniel, but we may do some minor prophets uh, before we actually get there. I just haven't decided yet. Um, but hopefully I will before we get there. Um, so you remember last week as we got into chapter 44 that God makes this distinction <coughs> among the um, Levites, the, the Levitical priests, in that he divides them into two groups, uh, those who are the sons of Zadok and those who are not. The sons of Zadok are the ones who minister close to the Lord. They're the ones who are in the inner court, in the sanctuary itself, in the nave, and in the Holy of Holies. And all the other Lev Levitical priests have to stay outside the gates to the inner court. They can go up on the porches because they're the ones who actually slaughter the animals on the tables that are on the porches of the inner court, but they can't go into the inner court. They have to then give the <clears throat> sacrifice over to the sons of Zadok. So we, we have this distinction that uh, God says he does, he's doing that for um, a punishment, really, against the ones who are not the sons of Zadok. For when Israel went wayward, they also went wayward back in the days of King David and King Solomon. And, um, and so there's this level of shame that we've talked about um, for those who are not the sons of Zadok, but yet they still get to minister in the house of God. And so there's also this level of esteem and admiration for them. And we'll see this morning that they have a particular portion of the land that is to be given to them. And we'll hopefully get into chapter 15 where that shows up this morning. 
And the last thing I want to do in chapter 44 is continue to walk through um, the last 15 verses or so, really the last 10, starting in verse 17. And this is a section of scripture where God is detailing specifics about the sons of Zadok, those who go close to the Lord, minister close to the Lord. You remember we've already seen that they have to wear special garments when they're in the inner court. They have to change their garments in the chambers as they move from the outer court to the inner court. They have to put on all silk. They can't uh, wear anything that would be bound on them that would cause them to sweat. They have to wear turbans on their heads, all made out of silk. And so we've already seen that. But here uh, in verse 17 and and following in chapter 44, um, you'll see in verse 17, it shall be that when they enter at the gates of the inner court, they shall be clothed with linen garments. The wool shall not be on them while they are ministering in the gates of the inner court and in the house. Linen turbans shall be on their heads and linen undergarments shall be on their loins. They shall not gird themselves with anything which makes them sweat. When they go out, go out into the outer court, in, sorry, when they go out into the outer court, into the outer court to the people, they shall put off their garments in which they have been ministering and lay them in the holy chambers. And they shall put on other garments so that they will not transmit holiness to the people with their garments. Also they shall not shave their heads, nor shall they let their hair locks grow long. They shall only trim the hair of their heads, nor shall any of the priests drink wine when they enter the inner court. And they shall not marry a widow or a divorced woman, but shall take virgins from the offspring of the house of Israel, or a widow, who is the widow of a priest. So you have these very, very specific guidelines for those who are gonna be ministering in the inner court. And you know um, they can't shave their heads, but they also can't grow their hair long. So they have to wear hair somewhat like we have on today, right? Where it's not long, but it's also not shaven, except for Andy. So Andy, you're gonna have to let that hair you're gonna have to let you're gonna have to let that hair grow a little longer. So, so, so I, I think these guys would probably stand out um, in in the you know as you see them among the people uh, as you walk through their land they're gonna have a hair style that's different from what everybody else has and so they're gonna be distinctive in that way. We don't know why God wants them to wear their hair a certain length, but he does, and so they will. Um, you notice also that they can't drink wine while they're ministering in the inner court. Doesn't say they can't drink wine. They just can't do it while they're in the inner court. So this isn't, some people take this and say this is a prohibition then against drinking. It's not. This is uh, simply when they're ministering before the Lord they can't drink wine. Doesn't say anything about when they're outside of the inner court. So you, you can't read into it, you know, uh, an interpretation that's not there. Uh, some people try to do that, but I think they're, they're taking liberties when they do that. Um, you see also that 
They can only marry a woman who's a widow if she's a widow of another priest. Other than that, they have to take um, someone who's a virgin. She could not be divorced or have been married before. Even someone who was married to someone who's not a priest could not be the wife of a priest. So uh, very specific, strict guidelines on them on how they're to conduct themselves both in the inner court and then in their lifestyles. Um, so uh, you'll see it goes on to say other things that are uh, prohibited really for them. You keep reading in verses 23 and 24, it says, moreover they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the profane and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. In a dispute they shall take stand to judge. They shall judge it according to my ordinances. They shall keep my laws and my st statutes in all my appointed feasts and sanctify my Sabbaths. So these guys have, other than ministering in the inner court, they have other things that they do in the, in the body of the Israelites. They, they're the ones who would teach the scriptures. Um, and again, remember, this is the sons of Zadok. This isn't all the Levitical priests. So these guys have the distinction of teaching the scriptures, and they also would be the ones that if you and I had a dispute, we would go before them uh, as, as opposed to other judges. Um, so they have um, certainly a lot of authority and a lot of prominence and um, they're the ones who all the people follow because they're the ones who teach on during the um, rituals which we'll see the the ceremonies of uh, the Sabbath and also at um, at Passover and then I think it's the Feast of Tabernacles which will still be we'll see this detailed a little later on uh, twice a year where you have those specific festivals that all of Israel will participate in is these guys, the sons of Zadok, who lead all that worship and who conduct the Sabbaths. And you, you'll see as we get a little further that you know the gates to the Eastern Gate are opened. We looked at that uh, on the Sabbaths. They're also opened on the new moons. It would be the Levitical priests who are leading all those ceremonies and conducting them. Uh, them and then the one who is called um, the prince, who we'll get back to here in, a, in the next chapter. So uh, a, lo a lot of administration to go on in the temple of God, in the, in the sanctuary area, in the inner court, all of it led by the sons of Zadok. And then uh, uh, obviously they come out of the inner court at some times. They have to change their garments to do that so that they won't transmit holiness whatever that looks like to the people. Um, so that's all, it's, that's all it says. I don't know exactly what that means. That um, obviously they've been in the presence of God um, who's in the nave and in the, uh, in the Holy of Holies and they're allowed to go into both of those places. So they're in the presence of God and because of that they have to change their garments. So again, this elevated level of worship that's being done by the sons of Zadok. So, and the great privilege to have God himself dwelling 
in the sanctuary. So um, they also cannot, as it goes on, they can't defile themselves by going into where a dead body is. So you would assume they have particular plots of land that are given to them. You would assume that they don't bury their own people there, that they must bury them somewhere outside of that because none of these priests who live in these particular areas can go near a dead body, except for if it's um, a very close relative. It gives some exceptions here. I think if it's their mother or father or if it's one of their children, they're, they're allowed, but then there's a ceremony they must go through to be cleansed um, because they've been in the presence of a dead body and they've been defiled. And so you remember God said, uh, don't bury your kings in the temple anymore, which was an ancient practice of the Israelites. They would actually bury the, uh, the leaders as they died in the temple. Um, God says, don't do that because you'll defile the temple. You did then and you will now. So you won't do that during the millennial reign of, of Jesus Christ and the presence of God the Father in the temple. Um, you also notice in verse 27, these guys are, are not sinless. You know, we've said this all along. They're true believers. They believe in Jesus Christ. They worship him. They worship God the Father here. They follow the statutes of God, but they're not perfect. They still sin, because you see in verse 27, he says, on the day that he goes into the sanctuary, this is talking about these sons of Zadok, into the inner court to minister in the sanctuary, he shall offer his sin offering, declares the Lord God. So these guys are not sinless. None of these people in Israel are sinless. They're normal human beings, just like you and I. They're still tainted with the stain of sin. They still sin. They still need to confess and to be forgiven. The difference is these sacrifices are not effectual in that they're what causes God to forgive them. God still, in this time, just like he does today, all sin is forgiven on the basis of Jesus Christ's death. And these sacrifices that these guys offer, and there are many of them that are detailed here, are all to point toward the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They're in commemoration of that sacrifice. They're not effectual for the forgiveness of sins. Never were in the Old Testament law, aren't in the millennial kingdom. They all are for the purpose of drawing attention to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so that's what's going on here. That's why they must offer these sacrifices um, to acknowledge what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And so um, you always have to keep that in mind because um, all through this millennial kingdom description, he talks about the sacrifices, the guilt offerings, the burn offerings, the grain offerings, the sin offerings, all of these different offerings, but none of them are effectual for salvation or for the forgiveness of sins. We saw back in chapter 36 that it's God who circumcises their heart, it's God who puts his spirit within them, just like he does to new believers today. Um, and so it's the same in the millennial kingdom. It's no different. And uh, just like we're not saved based upon taking the Lord's 
uh, table like we'll do this morning, we're doing that to commemorate what Jesus Christ has done. And so the same thing is true for these sacrifices in the millennial kingdom. They're not effectual for forgiveness of sins. And then the, the last three verses here, really, 28 through 31 of this chapter, simply say that the priests don't have an inheritance. They don't, um, the, the tribe of Levi is not given land like the other tribes are, but we'll see in the next chapter, they are given an area where they're to live. And a very specific area. Um, detailed as much as all the other tribes are detailed, the Levitical um, tribe does have a land in which they dwell. Apparently they don't possess it because it's a land that is holy to God. He's the one that possesses it, but they have a land to live in, a place where they live. And that, you know, it bothers a lot of people that all the other tribes got land, and but the tribe of Levi does not. But you'll see they are in a very prominent place where they live in chapter 45. We'll get into that. Um, you know, I, I keep making this emphasis because I think it's important that everything that we've looked at starting in chapter 40 all the way to the end of Ezekiel is descriptive. There's no action taking place. And I believe that's true because in chapters 38 and 39 where we had that war that I believe is at the end of the millennial kingdom, it's the war detailed in Revelation chapter 20, not 19. And there is no history of man after that war. That war leads into the throne judgment. And so that's why there's no activity, I believe, in chapters uh, 40 through 48 of Ezekiel because all of the history of man as we know the world today and as we know people living is done in chapter 39. That final war is the end of all things and then comes the throne judgment. So there is no, and, and I believe Ezekiel has written chronologically all the way through his book so when you get to chapter 38 and 39 and you have that war that is at the end of the millennial kingdom, there is no more human history after that or no human future after that. And so Ezekiel in these last nine chapters, 40 through 48, has no activity whatsoever. It's all descriptive. And you, you notice that as we go through this, there's nobody doing anything. He says what they're going to do but they're not actually doing it because they won't do it until you get to the millennial kingdom. So there is no history of man after the, millennial, after the war at the end of the millennial kingdom. That is the end of all things. And then comes the throne judgment, then comes the eternal stage. And so Ezekiel has done, he's finished with all of the history as we've seen it from Nebuchadnezzar and all the destruction that he did in Israel and the surrounding lands, all the way through that final war, that's all the history or all the future of man left at the time in which Ezekiel wrote. There is nothing else. And so these last nine chapters are simply descriptive. And you'll notice that as we continue to read, uh, the only people doing any activity are Ezekiel 
and the angel with him, and you know they're walking around there measuring things, but that's simply because that's what's needed for the vision. They're not doing anything other than observing because that's what they were, Ezekiel was commanded by God to do. So no activity here, and that, that continues as we get into chapter 45. And this chapter begins, you know, this whole study, the reason that we've been focusing from Genesis into Deuteronomy into Joshua, going through every chapter of Joshua, and then going to Ezekiel and going through every chapter of Ezekiel, is all about the land. That we see the land is prominent to God in Genesis when he first speaks to Abraham. He then speaks to Isaac and to Jacob and says, gives the exact same promises. Those promises are handed down to Moses after they come out of Egypt and then given to Joshua. Joshua takes much of the land, but not all of the land. That's very clear. And then all the way over in Ezekiel, after they go through the times of the judges and then the kings and then all the disarray in the nation of Israel, they come to, Neb to when the Babylonians take them. That's what Ezekiel's writing about. All, and then God brings up the land. It's not Ezekiel who brings up the land. Um, it's God who does. He speaks to Ezekiel and says, this land, I'm jealous for it. And so all of this has been to show that for some reason, the land that God gave to Abraham is the same land that he keeps detailing here in Ezekiel. He says it multiple times. This is the land that was given to your fathers and that you will dwell in it. And so God is focused on this land. And so here in the last three chapters, four chapters really, of Ezekiel, we go back to the land and the division of the land to the tribes of Israel and to the priests and to God himself. And so it's God who is bringing this up. It's not any of the writers of scripture. I mean, this, this chapter is literally God speaking to Ezekiel. And so it's, you know, people get all twisted about the land because we put a focus on it. Well, it's not us who do that. It's God who does that. And the only reason that we would talk about the land and believe there is a future for the land of Israel is because the scriptures themselves go back to it over and over and over again. What's the kingdom? What's the kingdom? Yeah. It's, it's really surreal to me. I mean, I've studied the Gospels, but it's so prominent when you begin to see. And then, so the whole Olivet Discourse was ushering in this kingdom. That was what Jesus spent his time teaching after he cleared out the temple. And then when he resurrects, what does he do for 40 to 50 days? Teaches on the kingdom. Right. Mm -hmm. 
Well, you remember that prominent um, scripture in Matthew that John David will ultimately get to where the Lord stands outside of the temple and prophesies about the same thing that is written and detailed in Revelation, almost in perfect chronological order matching what is done in Revelation. We'll look at that one day if the Lord tarries uh, when we get over there, but I mean, Jesus Christ basically giving John his script that's gonna come later as he stands outside the temple and looks at the walls of the temple and says, you know, no stone will be left upon itself. And, and certainly 40 years later that, that was fulfilled and, and became true. And um, so, and, and, and then he talks about all the cataclysmic events that will usher in the millennial reign of, of himself. And when he comes again, so I mean, it's just it, your perspective of how you look at the scriptures needs to be shaped by what the prophets have said since the beginning of, of the scriptures. And because, I mean, it's not like the Old Testament is just stories that are there so we can teach children Bible studies of things that didn't actually happen. They're there because they're true and they're real and the prophets told us what the future was going to be. And so we ought to pay attention to that. And when you get to the New Testament, there's no lack in continuity between what the Old Testament prophets said and what Jesus Christ and the apostles taught. It's a continuum. I mean, I don't see any break in, in the prophecy of the future and what's gonna happen. And so it does us good to pay attention to this. It's much bigger than that. It, the cross was the means by which God could justify humanity being with him when indwelling sin is finally eradicated, which is that end point you just talked about. Right. So the cross is huge, but the whole story has the cross in the middle of it, but the whole story is huge. Well, and, and all this that we're talking about, you know, this has a, was foreshadowed, all these sacrifices in the Old Testament to point the Israelites to Jesus Christ when he came. They just missed it, right? Um, because they were, had so distorted what was given to them in the scriptures. They added to it, they distorted what it actually meant, um, and the priests themselves were corrupt. They made it about themselves. Right, which, which always in the history of Israel the priests made it about themselves. There's nothing unique about the priests who were there at the time of Jesus Christ, which is why the sons of Zadok are the ones who minister in the inner court, because they were the ones who, the few who were faithful. And why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that Israel was given to us, the church, as an example, and that was in the form of a warning if you look at the Yeah, it's, it's not like they were given that this is what you should do. It's like they were given that this is what you should not do. <laughs> right. Okay, so as we, as we move into chapter 45, the division of the land is here. And you'll see th this is not to the tribes. 
this, this chapter is not to the tribes of Israel. They come in chapter 46. But in chapter 45, he says, when you divide by lot the land for inheritance, you shall offer an allotment to the Lord, a holy portion of the land. The length shall be 25,000 cubits and the width shall be 20,000. It shall be holy within its, all its boundaries round, round about. Out of this there shall be for the holy place a square round about 500 by 500 cubits and 50 cubits for its open spaces round about. This area you shall measure a length of 25,000 cubits and a width of 10,000 cubits and it shall be the sanctuary, the most holy place. So you get into all this language and he starts talking about all these dimensions, right? And you go, what in the world is he talking about? Okay, that diagram that you have, hopefully that you have. If I, Mark, did you have an extra one? This di these are really two diagrams of the same thing. Okay, I just took them from two different sources, one off the internet, one out of John MacArthur's study Bible, but they both show the same thing. It's just MacArthur's gives to the dimensions and the other one doesn't. But this is what he's talking about, is that between these two black lines here, this one and this one, and then the vertical ones also, that's the land that he's talking about. That is 25,000 cubits by 25,000 cubits. Okay, and right in the center of it is the sanctuary that we've looked at. And you notice here he says 500 cubits by 500 cubits, which is the dimensions we were given of the, um, the walls that surround the tabernacle itself. Okay, and then he says, I don't, don't think we read it yet, that outside of those walls, there's 50 cubits of cleared land. And then you assume outside of that, you get into the trees and the groves and that kind of stuff. So right in the center of this land that's being detailed is where the temple itself is. Okay, and that's what we just read. That in, and then you see this uh, land that is 25,000 cubits by 10,000 cubits. That's the land that's labeled as, as the Zadokian priests. Okay, these are the sons of Zadok. This is where they live, is in this 25,000 by 10,000 cubits that's closest to the sanctuary. This is where their homes are. They don't have a city that we, can, that we know anything about. He doesn't say anything about cities, but this land that is closest to the temple is, the, is theirs. This is where they live. This is where their homes are. And then to the north of that, you have all the other Levitical priests in that 10,000 by 25,000 square at, that's at the top. It's not a square, it's a rectangle. That's where all the other Levitical priests live. So you see the prominence, again, of the sons of Zadok. They're the ones who get to be closest to the temple. They have the shortest walk when it's time to go to work. Uh, the other priests live to the north. They do have cities. At least that's what the scripture says. 
And, um, and so they're still prominent. They have a land that is very close to the temple, but not like the Zadokian uh, um, priests have. And then, I mean, we could read this, but you can read it for yourself. Then to the south of the land where the temple is, you have another land that is 5,000 cubits by 25,000 cubits. And that's where the city is. Now, if you're talking about Israel, what is the city? It's Jerusalem. So this is where Jerusalem will be. This is where the throne of Jesus Christ will be. So you can see that he's close to the temple, but he's not in the temple. This is about, if you detail it out, I think it's less than two miles from the wall of the city of Jerusalem to the wall of the temple area. So it's not that far, but Jesus Christ is not in the temple. That's where God the Father is. Jesus Christ is in Jerusalem, sitting on the throne of David, ruling politically over the whole entire world. I mean, clearly people still worship him. We'll, we see that in other parts of the scripture, but his, his reign is one of politically. He's in control of everything. He, he's the one who reigns as king of the earth, king of his, of his um, kingdom. And so um, there is still a level of worship there, but the worship is focused in the temple. And that's where all the people go. That's where they're commanded to go. That's where the worship takes place. But clearly, Jesus Christ is involved in that worship. And then the land on each side of the city is the land of the city. It's, um, uh, you know, when you have a city, you have other things that need to be done outside of the city. This is their land for doing that. Um, again, you would assume they can bury people there, but you can't bury people in the land that's devoted to the Zadokian priests because they can't be near dead bodies. So there wouldn't be any funerals in there. There wouldn't be, I mean, you can't do that. And so it uh, doesn't say anything about the Levitical priest not being able to go near a dead body. Um, so you would assume maybe that's where they bury their people. Don't know. But this land is holy unto the Lord, the 25,000 cubits by 25,000 cubits. It's not given to any of the tribes. You can see on um, this diagram that Judah's to the north, Benjamin's to the south. And we'll see that when we see the land divided and given to the 12 tribes. But this 25,000 by 25,000 is holy to the Lord. And no one can live there um, except for the priests and then the residents of Jerusalem live in the in the area around Jerusalem also. And you'd assume there's a, you know, um, we know that the apostles will rule over the 12 tribes. So I would assume that they're in the lands that they rule over. They're not in Jerusalem. Um, they may come together at times in Jerusalem, but they are reigning over the 12 tribes. So they're probably going to be in the land of the people whom they reign over. That would be my thought there. So, but this is, uh, this is different than we've seen God divide the land in any of the other places that we've looked at in Scripture. 
Never did you see this area that was devoted to the Lord with the temple right in the center and the priests living there and then Jerusalem being on the south side. We have never seen this before. You know, in the, in the ancient city, the temple was inside of the walls of Jerusalem. That's where the temple was. I mean, originally, you know, when David um, moved into Jerusalem, he was unwilling for the temple, the tabernacle to be brought into the city, but ultimately it was. And then ultimately Solomon built the, uh, the temple and that was within the walls of Jerusalem. That's not true here. Jerusalem is to the south of the temple area. So different geography than we're given in other places in the scriptures for very specific reasons, because this um, allows the people to worship as God has directed them to. The, the last thing I wanna point out, and we'll look at this more in detail next time, because there's a lot that goes on in this land. You notice the land outside of the 25,000 by 25,000, but still within that north-south border is the land of the prince. Now we'll see the prince detailed as I've told you, and he is responsible for bringing all of the animals and all of the grain for sacrifice into the temple area. So he's gotta have a lot of property where he keeps animals. And so that's what's going on in this area that goes all the way to the Mediterranean Sea and all the way to the Black Sea and the River of Jordan is that he owns that, that's his. You gotta believe he's got other people helping him because one man could not administer over all this property, right? You who have a little bit of property like we saw yesterday or the Mayfields with their animals, you need a lot of help to take care of herds of animals. And they need herds um, because all the people who live in all the land of Israel are to take the firstborn that is without a blemish and take it to this guy in this land. And that's what provides the animal. And then he takes care of them until they become grown and then takes them to be sacrificed. And I don't know if he has fields or if it's the people who have fields and bring him the grain, but he's also responsible for the grain offerings. So all of these offerings, this priest or this prince is to bring into Jerusalem. And we'll see that detailed a little later on. So he needs a lot of property and it needs to be without people trampling through it because that's where the animals are. And so this land, which is pretty expansive uh, if we went over and walked it, um, is given to the prince. Is that 
Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Sure. In this reign, who are having disputes, indwelling sin, unregenerate people, and they are bringing them back to the administration of this theocracy to have those decisions made by the Lord Himself and His right. You begin to see this thing come to life. Yeah. The, and it leaves you wonder are there, there are other God ordained forms of government, or is there a well, we know this. We know that the church rules over the rest of the world, right? We're given that in Revelation 5, that we'll reign with him. So during this time when, when Jesus Christ reigns, so does the church with him over the other nations. With an iron rod, meaning there will be uprisings that will be squelched, put down. You, you notice even in describing Israel, that you can't marry a divorced woman, which means what? There's divorce in the kingdom of God in Israel during the millennial reign. There's also death because there are widows. There's sin because they have to offer sacrifices to be cleansed. Not that they are effectual, but nevertheless, there's sin. So the world goes on like it does today. It's just administered differently. Yeah, it's a, it really is God's design and what's falling apart now in governments all over the world. Sure. The government's purpose ordained by God is to restrain evil and protect people, right? Yeah. That in large part is what this church in this reign is going to be doing through a consistent form of government. Right. Intended to restrain evil and have the law to bring it to well, and people are correct when they say this is a time of peace. There are no wars because the church is reigning with Jesus Christ. So that is true. And there's a level of righteousness because sin is put down. But it's not perfect. And there's still humans being born and dying and people divorcing their wives even in the nation of Israel. I mean, that's still happening because he makes provisions for these things. It's not right, and 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 this is not a perfect world in the millennial kingdom. It's not, and uh, so that those visions that we've been taught of what this millennial kingdom are like for me personally are wrong. They push against the scriptures, and so what do you do with that when you find the scriptures pushing against what you've been taught? you discard what you've been taught and you believe the scriptures. Well, and you can go to the next question. God is sovereign. He precisely decreed that that imperfection was still going to be that indwelling sin was still going to be there. So what is his purpose in that? To show that apart from that final elimination of indwelling sin and the humanity that carries it, it's going to continue to, to rule as it does indwell us right now. Sin right. During this time, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, no sin. You'll be in a resurrected, perfected, glorified body. Unthinkable, but nevertheless true during this millennial reign. And you will reign with Jesus Christ 
and he who reigned over uh, a, a little and was faithful will be given much. But we'll see far more vividly oh, the, yeah. the effect that sin is having on the rest of the unglorified, non-glorified world that is dwelling even unregenerate. We'll see the devastating effect that sin was having. And what's the result of that? You worship Jesus Christ right. even more. Right? I mean, that's the result of that. Okay, we're done for the day. Thank you for your time.